This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com StatCast podcast. I'm your host, Mike Petriello, joined here by MLB.com National Editor Matt Myers. We are into the offseason. We finally have the first major signing of the winter, Will Smith to Atlanta. We'll get into that, some of the qualifying offers. And then we're going to try to apply some data to some of the other interesting free agents. Drew Pomerantz, of all people, did an interesting thing. I want to know why Marcelo Zuna keeps underperforming. And perhaps most importantly, can Nicholas Castellanos field? That is what we're going to get into today. But first, here's the thing I just realized I can do. I know this is going to be obnoxious, but I want to see what happens. Uh, It's officially baseball time now. That's the thing I can do. It's very obnoxious. I promise I won't do that uh, more than five or six times. Qualifying, per episode. Yes. Uh, <laughs> qualifying offers came in yesterday. Uh, two were accepted. The remainder were rejected. Were you, I guess let's start with this. Were you surprised by either of the two that accepted Jose Abreu or Jake Odrizzi? Uh, not at all. Um, I mean, I thought there was a chance, especially with Abreu, that one of those guys would would like agree to a long-term deal, a, a multi-year deal. Um instead of actually just accepting the offer. Um, but the fact that either of those guys accepted does not surprise me. You know, I think that Orisi could have gotten a multi-year deal if he had tested the market, but it would not have approached the, you know, whatever, 17.8 million average annual value. So I could see him saying, hey, you know what? I'm going to take the best AAV I can get. I pitched well here. I feel comfortable. Maybe I'll pitch well again here again in 2020, and then I'll hit the market, and there will be no qualifying offer attached to me because you can't get it twice. He turns 30 in March, so he's actually still young enough that, like, he could hit the market again and still be someone who's in not, like, high demand, but reasonable demand. Well, I definitely wasn't surprised that Jose Abreu accepted the qualifying offer. Like, it was kind of a shock it wasn't accepted, like, right away. I've never seen a free agent, um, and, you know, obviously this is for the right reasons, kill their own market as much as him when he kept saying, I only want to play for the White Sox. I'm definitely coming back to the White Sox. Um, I was kind of surprised they didn't end up with like the two for 28 or whatever we all expected. So that's fine. I was originally on board with you about Jake Odorizzi. Um, but now I'm actually a little surprised that he didn't accept it just because Will Smith, we'll get into it in a second, did accept it. He got three years as a reliever with a qualifying offer on him. Why couldn't Odorizzi as a starter? Maybe he wasn't confident he could. Maybe he didn't want to go through the stress of it. Maybe he liked Minnesota. Uh, but that, that was surprising to me that once Smith got the three-year deal, that order is he accepted it. Well, one thing I think to factor in is that the free agent market for relievers is pretty weak, it's as we'll get really we'll bad. get to we'll get to in a minute. Whereas for starting pitchers, it's actually pretty deep. For like deep in the sense of like mid-level guys who probably could give you some quality innings next year. There's a fair amount of names out there. I'm just I'm looking at the list right now. Obviously I'm not talking about Cole, Strasburg, even Wheeler or Ryu, but you've got like You've got uh, Tanner Roark. You've got Michael Pineda, although he's going to be suspended for, for the first part of the year, but only a small part of it. You had Homer Bailey, who was very good this year. You have Jordan Lyles, who was pretty good this year. Gio Gonzalez, Dallas Keuchel. Like, there are a lot of, like, pretty good – Alex Wood. Like, there's a lot of, like, pretty good, like, four or five – you know, three to five starters out there. Well, I think Odorizzi is better than those guys. I could easily see a team being like, 
am I really going to pay a premium for Odorizzi and give up a draft pick when I could just get, you know, Roark on a, on a one-year deal for or two-year deal for a lot less? You know what I'm saying? So I think that that's... I mean, Odorizzi is a lot better than Tanner Roark. I guess, but like... He's also been up and down in his career. It's not like he has like this like long track record. No. If he did have a long track record of dominance, he's definitely not taking the ball. Right. <laughs> uh, the guys who rejected it, Garrett Cole, Donaldson, Rendon, Strasburg, Bumgarner, Ozuna, Wheeler. No surprises there. But also Will Smith, who then, I was going to say immediately, but perhaps directly before, uh, signed a three-year deal with the Atlanta Braves. This is the first real signing of the winter. Um, we've had some re-signing, Marquecas and Adam Wainwright and a one minor trade with Chase Anderson going to Toronto. But this is the first actual real deal. And I think it's pretty interesting because uh, as you kind of alluded to, the reliever market is really, really weak. There are a thousand different starting pitchers that you can and should sign, but the best relievers on the market are were Smith, you know, Will Harris, who I like, Dylan Batances, who pitched to exactly two two guys last year, uh, Chris Martin and Joe Smith. And then we're gonna get into Drew Pomerantz. He's awesome. But that's like that's kind of it. So for the Braves to swoop in and give three years to Will Smith, um, I think makes a lot of sense because I sort of get the feeling that not enough people know how great he's been. Like he's been really, really good over no, the last couple he, of years. He, he has been. And, um, you know, bullpen, as we saw, uh, was a bit, of, a bit of an issue for the Braves all year. Even after they made their their upgrades, they basically now they've essentially just inherited the Giants bullpen from opening day 2018. They now Melanson and Will Smith is like the back end of their bullpen. I got I got a really big kick out of uh, in the story that the Braves released or that Mark Bowman wrote, the Braves saying that Mark Melanson's going to be our closer and Will Smith is going to set him up. I'm like, I feel like I've seen this story before. <laughs> it's not going to end this way. Uh, Will Smith got three years and $39 million. It's really $40 million if you include the $1 million buyout of his 2023 team option. Uh, in parts of three seasons with the Giants, let's drop some numbers on you. 270 ERA, it's really good. 190, 193 strikeouts in 136 and two-thirds innings, really, really good. This past year, he had a 37.4% strikeout rate, which was the 10th best among 341 pitchers with 50 innings. If you look at expected weighted on base over the last two seasons combined, he is a top 10 reliever. If you look at actual weighted on base, a top 10 reliever. Do you think anybody thinks of Will Smith as a top 10 reliever? I say probably not. I started thinking today about like my top 10 lists for the MLB network shows we do. And I've never had Will Smith in my top 10. And I guess I need to like shove him in the back end of it this time around. Yeah, it sure. It sure seems like it. And I, I can totally see why he did this deal right now when he did it. If you remember last off season, the relievers that got paid were the ones who jumped on deals early. You know, it was like, you know, Adovino got a big deal early. Familia got a big deal early. And then, you know, Kimbrell held out. And I guess he ended up getting kind I mean, of. I they all get like the same deal. <laughs> <laughs> right. But like you, you can end up in that weird middle ground where the sort of uh, the the dollars, you know, maybe evaporate. So for him to get three, three for 39. Uh, three for, yeah, plus the one million. So 340. So that's that's a pretty good job for uh, Will Smith. He throws his slider more than 40% of the time. And it is, if not the best slider in baseball among relievers, it is arguably up there over the last two years. He's allowed a 156 weighted on base against the slider. Only two pitchers have had a better mark. You can probably easily guess that Josh Hader is one of them. You would not easily guess that Sir Anthony Dominguez is the other one. Now you know something about Sir Anthony Dominguez. I was I was kind of expecting when I looked into Will Smith this morning to find that maybe leaving San Francisco would be a problem. It's obviously a wonderful pitcher's park. He has not had big home road splits. Uh, as a giant at home, a 294 ERA on the road, a 244 ERA. That was kind of surprising to me. By the way, Madison Bumgarner this year, 293 at home, 529 on the road. 
Hachimachi. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah, when I when I go um, when I look at the the list of players who rejected qualifying offers, I actually think Bumgarner is the one whose market could be most affected by having received it. Uh, well, I mean, I guess I would agree in the sense there's a ton of starters and he's not the guy he used to be, but he certainly has that mystique. Like, I guess it, fans will get excited if you sign him. It's certainly, it's certainly, yeah, it's sort of a, the, it's like, it's a bit of a Rorschach test for front offices of like how much you value just like the aura of postseason um, dominance that he's had in the past. Granted, the last, you know, I guess in 2016, he was good in the postseason and obviously way before that, but that's, 2016 is coming up on four years ago, and to be, to be to be clear, I'm not I'm not discounting it. If Madison Bumgarner is on my roster, I feel comfortable with him starting a postseason game. That said, he's kind of just a guy now in the regular season, so I mean, I'll give him a little more than that, like you know, slightly above league average. Sure, but like it's it, 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 his his market will be very interesting to see. And I guess the other one would be uh, Marcel Zuna. We'll get to him later. As well, so uh, Will Smith is very, very good, and he has been added to a bullpen that really badly needed him. Uh, the Braves' pen is now something like Will Smith, Mark Melanson, uh, Shane Green, who wasn't that great after they traded for him, Luke Jackson, who has had big moments and also disaster moments, uh, Darren O'Day, and Will Smith, maybe Sean Newcomb. But what I found interesting is so the Braves have now added or retained four guys so far this winter two weeks worth of winter. Every single one of them has Georgia ties. I know the Braves historically love their hometown guys, Jason Hayward, Brian McCann, Smith, O'Day, Flowers, and Marcakis all have some connection to or were born in Georgia. It is one of my like enduring favorite things about the Braves that they continue to do that. And with different front offices. Right. It's like, it's <laughs> right. Not like, it's like one thing when it was like Scherholtz doing it for so many years. It's like, okay, well, you know, this is like the the John Scherholtz Braves. This is their MO. But no, it it, it continues. Uh, last thing on Will Smith. And again, maybe he wanted to go to Georgia. I do not know. Since there are so few relievers out there, do you think how, do you think there's a lot of other contenders who are now wishing they had kicked away the qualifying offer pick to given him more than three for thirty nine or three for forty? Um, I don't know. That as you said, that's kind of like what relievers get nowadays. So it's hard to imagine a team going to be like, I'm gonna you know, as good as he is, he's not quite at the you know, he's not at the hater level. So it's like if you know, if I'm if if someone like Hater is a free agent. That might be different, sure. But like Smith, he's not quite that level. So for him to like go to be like, we're gonna blow blow previous reliever deals out of the water for for Will Smith. Um, I'm not so sure about that. It's not even about the qualifying offer. It's more just about like how relievers are valued. Would you have believed four months ago if I told you that Drew Pomerantz is gonna get a multi year deal and is going to be in high demand? <laughs> I would not have believed it. But um, as you're about to explain, and as people are about to hear, I think you'll people will now understand why Drew Pomerantz has had a really interesting career path. He was the number five overall pick the year that Bryce Harper and uh, Manny Machado were two of the top four picks. Uh, Jameson Tyon was one of the other ones. And I can't remember who the other guy was, but that tells you a I lot about to, how successful. Christian Colon? Matt Hobgood? Yeah, I think you might be right, Christian Colon. Yeah. Anyway, that hasn't worked out so well. Uh, Drew Pomerantz was drafted by the Indians. He bounced around Rockies, the A's, the Padres, the Red Sox. Uh, has had like varied success and made the all-star team in 2016 was pretty good for the Red Sox in 2018. Um, but he's also had a lot of lows, including last year, 2018 with the Red Sox, where he was mostly injured and generally bad. And then he signed with the Giants this past year and he was really, really bad. He was dropped from a bad San Francisco rotation in order to make room for, I'm going to pause to see if anybody knows who stepped up to take his spot in the rotation. You don't. Connor Menez, you don't. <laughs> Uh, anyway, so he gets bumped to the uh, 
bullpen at that point. Even with the good work he did in the bullpen this entire year, he had a 485 ERA. I think the common fan will see that and go, who is this guy? Why should I care about him? So he gets dropped to the bullpen in July, and he is awesome. We've seen this story a lot of times, but they don't always work out this cleanly. As a reliever with the Giants and then the Brewers, who he was traded to at the end of July, 106 batters faced 50 strikeouts. That is a lot. That is 15.4 strikeouts per nine, or more appropriately, 47.2% of the batters he faced were strikeouts. How good is a 47% strikeout rate in relief? Let me tell you, extremely good. Uh, It's easy to find splits on this going back to 2002, so that's what I did. There have been nearly 4,600 seasons since 2002 where a reliever faced at least 100 batters. 47% strikeout rate is sixth best behind Two Craig Kimbrell seasons, one Hader season, one Aroldis Chapman season, and now you're going to remember a guy from this show, Carter Caps. <laughs> you a long-time listener. Throw one out for Carter Caps, And then Drew Pomerantz. Now, there's obviously a little more to this story. Um, my impression is even if this is a small sample thing, which it absolutely is, you cannot get to that over a course of 100 batters uh, by accident, right? Like this shows real skill, and I think this is what teams are going to be betting on. Yeah, no. And I mean, you also can see it. It's a guy who just changed the way he pitched. And so like it's there's there's a tangible thing you see that's different. And I don't want to say it's I don't want to say it's boring or predictable, but it's like he did exactly the things that all of these guys do. He, he's very similar in a lot of ways to Andrew Miller, who was a high draft pick, failed to be a starter for a couple teams, bounced around, went to the bullpen, dropped his crappy pitches, uh, focused on his two very good pitches. And was great. And, you know, that's exactly what Pomerantz did. I want to get back to like the 50 strikeouts thing in a second, right? What are the two things that you generally see when a pitcher, a starting pitcher, goes to the bullpen and improves? There's two very clear things you always see. They throw harder. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> um, and they drop their, their bad pitches. Wow, they, it's, they, go, they go down to two pitches. Man, it shouldn't be that. I, as we go through this, the, the name I have in the back of my head, and I know this is never going to happen because of uh, stature and salary name value. Um, but the guy I keep thinking about, is Clayton Kershaw, right? Like if Clayton Kershaw became a reliever? Yes. <laughs> the velocity, he had a good season. Like he's obviously much more successful than Pomerantz was. The velocity's not there. Just think about Clayton Kershaw as a fastball slider guy out of the bullpen. It's not going to happen. I get it. Fine. One interesting thing about Pomerantz is he actually started throwing his fastball a lot more. Whereas a lot yes. of times you see guys go to the bullpen and they'll throw their, they'll end up throwing like Andrew Miller becoming like extremely reliant on their breaking ball. Whereas his fastball percentage went way up above 60%. Whereas a starter, he was like throwing his fastball like 30, 40%. As a starter, he was a five pitch guy, you know, four seam sinker, curveball cutter change. Uh, and even in 2019 as a starter, he threw his four seamer and his curveball 80% of the time. That's a lot. As a reliever, he threw a four seamer and a curveball. 95% of the time, uh, which is a great deal more. The, the main story here is velocity. When he had been a starter for a bunch of years, he kind of averaged the 91 to 93 range, you know, which is fine from a lefty. 2018, where he probably wasn't healthy, he had dipped below 90. And then when he got back into the rotation this year, he was up to 92. As a reliever this year, 94.5. And this one, I remember watching this and almost falling out of my chair. On September 7th against the Cubs, he threw a fastball 97.5 miles an hour. That's a thing that Drew Pomerantz can do now, apparently. <laughs> so if you can do that, that's great. The other thing is stop throwing bad pitches and throw your better pitches. Like this shouldn't be rocket science at this point. Um, as I said, he was a five pitch guy. He too, some of those pitches weren't very good. The changeup for his career allowed a 942 OPS against. That's bad. <laughs> the sinker, 922, also bad. So he essentially has dropped those pitches. And he is just throwing the four-seamer and the curveball now. 
that's fine if those pitches are good and they're really good. Like I actually talked to him about this in spring training in 2016, like before his all-star season for the, for the Padres, you can't be a starter with two pitches, obviously. Um, But at the time, what he said to me, and I'm quoting is I've always had a pretty good fastball and it kind of gets on them. It surprises them a little bit. I've just always had the kind of fastball that jumps in my mind. No kidding. We had pretty much just launched StatCast at that point. And if you look at the numbers for 2019, the fastball numbers and the curveball numbers are outstanding. He has 84th percentile fastball spin, and it gets an extra two and a half inches of rise. Now, that two and a half inches mark is tied for 10th best of nearly 200 pitchers who've thrown 500. Among the names ahead of him, Chapman, Doolittle, Nick Anderson, Liam Hendricks, Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander. That seems to me like a list you want to be on. Fastball rise is a good thing. Uh, he also got five inches of extra vertical drop on his curveball. It's tied for 17th behind more famous curves like Bauer, Lugo, Walker Bueller, and Garrett Cole. The only pitcher who gets as much fastball rise and as much curveball drop as Drew Pomerantz, Garrett Cole. I'm not saying he's Garrett Cole. Cole is more durable. He throws harder. He's got more than two good pitches. But this is a pretty good recipe for a guy who is never going to be a great starter consistently and could be like a really good reliever. I actually think there's an argument that he is – I think I'd rather have him than Will Harris. Smith. Um, Smith. Uh, no, but I'm saying no. Smith is off the board. I'm saying of who's, oh, oh, of okay, who's, okay. Of who's left. Oh, I agree with you on that. Yeah, like, I, think he, I, think I would he, take the risk. I think he's now is probably the best – I mean, who am I forgetting? Is he the best reliever out there? Well, you, you could take a risk on Dylan Potensis. Who's going to miss a couple months and – Well, he's supposedly supposed to be – Having a normal offseason, but he threw two batters this year. You can't count on it. So yeah, I guess Batances would be would be the other one. But um, Chris Martin, maybe like I'm. I think I take a chance. On, he's going to get maybe a three year deal. I think he. I think he will. You know, no qualifying offer. Right. There's not a lot of relievers available. He's still. Um, I think he's thirty, twenty nine. He's he, not that old. He's a, you know he's a lefty. He throws he throws harder now. I think that there's it's it's going to be very interesting to see what deal he gets and people kind of do triple takes. Granted, we've seen you know some teams might feel you know looked at looking at like for example the Joe Kelly experience last year, Ugh. which there are some comps in terms of like hey here's a guy who was always like kind of well regarded because of his stuff, never really put it together, and then just happened to put it together at, at the biggest exact stage at right time <laughs> and probably ended up a big deal and then was a big disappointment. Although Kelly was a little better in the second half this year, wasn't he? He was he, at least he, pitchable. He was if you stopped watching baseball before the playoffs. <laughs> Fair point. Um, point being that like there probably are some teams that are just sort of like scared off by that, you know, just they don't want to take that chance. But the, when it comes to upside of the relievers out there, he has, I think, maybe not by far the most upside of any reliever still out there, but I mean, yeah, I think he might. And he, he's, I guess Batons would be the other, would only well, be the other okay, one. But neither one of these guys is going to cost you $80 million. No. You know, like as far as these contracts go, it's relatively uh, low, low risk. And I wanted to figure out like, so I said to the 47% strikeout really as a reliever, that's really cool, but it's also a little unfair. He faced 106 batters. It's not a full season, right? He did it over a couple of weeks. So I asked um, my colleague, Jason Bernard, to help me out with looking up the data on this. I wanted to know how often in this century, so you know, in the 21st century, has a reliever faced at least or struck out at least 50 batters in a 106 batter span? Uh, and it turns out 29 other guys have done it, a little more than I thought. But there's a lot of strikeouts these days, and some of the guys have done it multiple times. Just relievers, I'm not accounting for starters here. And what I wanted to know is, okay, now I have a list of 29 other guys who did what potent what uh, Pomeranz just did. Well, what happened to them? Are they any good? Like, were, did any bust? And this is what I thought was interesting. So I split them into a couple of groups. 
somewhat subjectively, but I don't think there'll be too much argument on these. The first group I considered the studs, like the consistently very good or have had some like borderline historic seasons. Uh, there's 12 of these guys. I wrote an article on this, so I'm not going to give you all the years and numbers, but the names in my stud group are Josh Hader, Edwin Diaz, Craig Kimbrell, Kenley Jansen, Andrew Miller, Dallin Patances, Roldis Chapman, David Robertson, Sean Doolittle, Wade Davis, Brad Lidge, Eric Gagne, Matt, I assume you would agree. That is a list you want to be a part of if you are a relief pitcher. Yes, I would agree. I also, uh, my second level list were like solid guys, you know, very good, but not quite that good. 11 of these, Adovino, Chad Green, Chris Devensky, Corey Knable, Ken Giles, Brad Boxberger, Jason Grilly, Raphael Betancourt, Carlos Marmel, Brian Fuentes, Young Young Kim. Now you've remembered some guys. I had to go back and look at Raphael Betancourt's age 35 and 36 seasons for the Rockies. He was really good, and we never really paid attention to it. Another high spin guy. Uh, that's exactly right. Another <laughs> high spin guy. Uh, those guys you know, have had various flavors of solid careers. And there are also six guys that were too soon to say. Well, there's also the one. Well, I'm going to get to that. (laughs) There's six guys who uh, just did it for the first time this past season. So we don't have enough information. Pomerantz, uh, Hector Neris, Nick Anderson, heartbeat Nick Anderson. You know how we feel about him on this show. Uh, Jose Alvarado. And then possibly the two best relievers of 2019. Imagine saying this a year ago. (laughs) Kirby Yates and Liam Hendricks. Well, that also also speaks to the, uh, you know... um, Unpredictable nature of relievers. Well, that's true. Which could be work against Pomerantz in the free agent So I've now named uh, 29 names, and none of them have been total busts or flukes. The 30th name was, I already said his name earlier in the show, poor one out for Carter Capps. Uh, he blew out his elbow, had a lot of controversy about the, the legality of his pitching mechanics. As far as I could tell, he is uh, out of baseball. He's only 29 years old. So fine, there's always going to be someone... But as for Pomerantz, if you're trying to figure out, well, was this just a hot couple weeks or something sustainable? There's no guarantees in life. But so far this century, with the exception of Carter Capps, everyone who's done this has had himself a pretty good relief career. I think that gives me a little more confidence if I'm a team looking to invest in it. And it goes back to just the the, the you know the weak uh, you know relief market. Some of the other like quote unquote top names that will be out there. We mentioned Will Harris, Sergio Romo, Chris Martin. Uh, Daniel Hudson actually he might be a little bit in demand because he looks so good for um, for Washington. Um, Talk about a guy who's been up and down. <laughs> exactly. So it's the the, the market is tilting in uh, in Pomerantz's favor. Um, what does he get? Does he get three years? I, I would say where, but like any contending team could use him. <laughs> yeah, um, I think he'll get like. I guess it sort of depends a little bit on like what he's looking for. If he's just looking for the biggest possible deal, he'll get like, you know, three for 20, 24. But yeah. if he's just, you know, maybe he can get two for two for 20 if he wants a little higher. I know, AAB. Yeah, like I assume, you know, the Braves just went after Smith, so there won't be them. But you could see him fitting with the Mets. You could see him fitting with the Dodgers. You can see him fitting with the Cubs. Like, you name it, there'd be a fit there. Yeah, every contender wants to make their bullpen better. What do you think about Marcelo Zuna? He, well, first of all, did you think he was going to accept the qualifying offer? I didn't, but. He did not. No, I didn't. I didn't think he would. Um, and um, that said, I think he's he's the one position player on the list of qualifying offer uh, rejectors uh, that I think could see his market affected by it a little bit. He is kind of what put, put aside the fact that like, and we'll get to get into this like his weird expected stats versus actual stats. He's kind. He's a pretty one dimensional player. He has no speed. He is an adventure in the outfield. And he also doesn't look like the kind of player who's necessarily going to age gracefully. Well, I was, was going to ask you a loaded question, which was, is, Mario Sel- is Marcel Azuna good? <laughs> um, I'd love him on my team next year. 
Okay, um, that's a start. That said, like, I wouldn't... He's, he's left field only or DH, and he's never been such a good hitter, or at least not since 2017. But right now, if you look at his career, 217 is the big outlier when he hit 312, 376, 548 with 37 home runs. That one stands on its own. So... If you the rest of it, you know the rest of his career is more of like a one ten OPS plus guy, weighted runs created plus that range, which is like ten to fifteen percent above league average, factoring in below average defense and speed. That is probably not going to he age that well. Was once a Gold Glove winner, and I'm not, I'm not trying to put it all on that hilarious play where he tried to climb the wall and then missed the ball by like eight feet. Let me take you on a tangent for a second. Uh, Will Leach and I did a draft of drafting. Rosters from all the free agent players, and and here's what we learned about that: starting pitchers are super duper deep, relievers there's just nobody. Uh, there's a couple of really good third basemen, and there's two and a half outfielders, right? Like, is Marcelo Zuna the best outfielder available? Um, no, I think because because the qualifying offer Nicholas Castellanos will be in okay, more, will and, be in more, and a little bit of recency bias. Yeah, uh, yes, you, but I you think, think a guy gets out of a bad situation at Detroit and pounds it for a contending team, you can ride that. Yes, I think the two of them are pretty similar, and actually they're both they're both um, on the young side for a free agent. Yeah. Um, but um, I think that Castellanos. Um, for all those reasons, also just a little, a little bit more athletic. I think he'll just age a little more gracefully. Um, I think I'd rather have Castellanos. Okay, so here's what we're going to try to figure out: Is Marcelo Zuna good? And I know that's oversimplifying it, but these are the kind of questions you have to ask when you're looking at free agents. Last year, he, if you look at him from a Statcast point of view, was outstanding. He had a 96th percentile hard hit rate of 49%, top dozen in baseball, as hard as Christian Yelich or Jordan Alvarez. That's good. Yes, <laughs> that's, that's really good. Uh, if you were to look at the uh, expected weighted on base, so like the quality of contact, over his two years in St. Louis, he's been one of the 25 best hitters in the game. I didn't realize this until I looked this up. In 2019, he had baseball's largest walk rate increase, up from 6% to 11%, and he dropped his ground ball rate, and his strikeout rate is better than league average. All of these things are like exactly what you want to see. Wow, this guy hits the ball hard, he walks a lot, and he doesn't put it on the ground, and he doesn't strike out a ton. Superstar. But... but <laughs> The outcomes were weird. In 2018, he had a 106 OPS plus. In 2019, he had a 107 OPS plus. Combine the two years, and he was similar to Derek Dietrich or Mitch Moreland. Not exactly what you want. Derek Dietrich, who was just outrighted to the minors. Well, he's had himself a weird two years. <laughs> I know. As but well. I'm just saying for a little more context yes. there. So that's not necessarily the kind of guy you want to give up a pick for and invest in a giant uh, contract. Now, as you'd expect, this means he is a giant underperformer. If you look at him in 2018, he had a 359 expected weighted on base and only a 327 actual, 32-point deficit. Last year, he had a 380 expected weighted on base and a 340 actual, a 40% deficit. Now, people see that, and I think they are tempted to say, bad luck. He hit into a lot of hard hit outs, and he did, but I don't feel comfortable going straight to bad luck. And in fact, I do not think it's bad luck. Uh, If you were to look... At the five years now, we have the SACCAS data. His 2019 is the third largest negative deficit on record from a right-handed hitter. His 2018 was the 14th largest. Fangraphs actually looked into this a little bit, and they noted the only hitter to underachieve in both 2018 and 2019 was Marcelo Zuna. The way I feel about it is you do it once, okay, it's a fluke. Maybe that is bad luck. You do it twice in a row by this much, and we got to figure out what's going on with you. So I dug into this a lot. I wrote a whole article about it. I'm going to summarize as opposed to getting into some very dense math here. But I tried to break it down into uh, balls 
in play and home runs. And I wanted to say, okay, well, maybe he lost out on some home runs, which would be a weird thing to say in the year of 2019 where Matt and I both hit 20 home runs this year. I don't think that's it. Uh, in, if you look at the last two years combined, the two years in St. Louis, he had a 13% home run rate on his flies and liners. The major league average is 10. You just look at the hard hit ones. He had a 21% home run rate. Major league average is 21. And he had a home run in 6% of all of his at-bats this year. As a Marlin in 2017, his very good season, he had a home run in 6% of his at-bats. If you look at it last year, 62% of his barrels were home runs. The major league average is 60%. I don't see anything in there that says he lost out on home runs. It's all about the balls in play. If you look at his expected batting average on balls in play the last three years, very consistent, 337, 333, 337. If you look at his actual batting average on balls in play, 356, 312, 257. That is a trend line you don't want to be part of. And also it also the that negative trend kind of coincides with him going to St. Louis. Well, that's true. And then, you know, the part of this I can't really investigate is we know in 2018 he jacked up his shoulder, right? And supposedly that's why he can't throw. Supposedly uh, that got fixed. But, you know, I wouldn't surprise me if that changed his swing in some way that I can't perceive. And like he's selling out to pull for power. I don't know. That could very possibly be it. Uh, When I looked into why I broke down the different kinds of batted balls, line drives, no impact. He got exactly what was expected. Ground balls. He had a 270 expected average and he hit 160. In the five years of StatCast, only one righty hitter has had a larger gap, and that was Gary Sanchez in 2018, who A, is really slow, and B, probably did hit into the worst luck I think I've ever seen. <laughs> See, sometimes it can be bad luck. I don't think it's that in this case. Well, with Sanchez, there's also the case of he's a guy who gets who gets shifted pretty heavily and is really slow, so it's well, like... So Ozuna is becoming that guy. He's not as slow, um, but he has gotten shifted about four times as often as he did a couple years ago. And he's been pulling his grounders over the last three years way more from 37% to 49% to 55%. All of this is a way to say, I think he's making it really easy for teams to position against him. Like he is hitting a lot of hard hit outs, but I watched a lot of those and a lot of those crushed 104 mile an hour line drives to shortstop where like the shortstop seemed like he knew where he should be, you know? So I think he's doing something that's uh, causing his own bed luck. If that's the way you want to say it. And this is what we've started to see in the last couple of years with the evolution of the shift. Is, right. You know, we now see right-hand hitters shifted the same way we see left-hand hitters, which didn't really, that's really a phenomenon that's really just taken hold. Um, you know, basically, I'd say it started with Pools in like 2015 and 2016, and then te- everyone right. started to do it with guys like Sanchez. Chris Bryant guys, sees it. Yeah. It's not just, I mean, Pujols is an outlier because he's so slow, right? But like Chris Bryant's not. He's an athlete, and you're seeing it against him. So that's, I mean, it's, it's it it makes sense that you would see these these kinds of outcomes for Azuna, which to a certain extent does hurt his I mean it hurts his value. Well that's the thing, and, and you can't look at this like very high expected weighted on base and say, Oh yeah, he's gonna do that next year. It doesn't work that way, and I, I don't think it will, but I guess the way I look at it is if you have a guy with a one oh six OPS plus, you can get there in one of three ways. You can get there because that's just what you are. Uh, you can have everything go right and get there, or you can show a lot more and get there. I'd probably like to gamble on the last guy and say, well, maybe there's something another team can do that. You know, we saw it with Miami. Miami's not a good place to hit. No. Uh, but then again, maybe St. Louis isn't either. I, I couldn't really explain why this is. Um, Bush Stadium was super weird this year. It played like the world's biggest pitcher's park. I guess not really because San Francisco still exists. Uh, in 2019, Ozuna slugged 47 points higher away from home. And he hit 16 of his 29 home runs on the road. Uh, this, these facts about the Cardinals, their pitchers, were kind of surprising to me. Look at these home road splits for some prominent St. Louis starters. Adam Wainwright, 256 ERA at home, 622 on the road. 
Miles Michaelis, 301 at home, 540 on the road. Jack Flaherty, 237 at home, 313 on the road. Um, I wanted to figure out what in the world was going on. Bush Stadium had 584 hard hit flies and liners from right-handed hitters. That's a very average number. It's the 14th most. But on those high-value batted balls, it had the 28th highest slugging percentage above only San Francisco and Kansas City, two well-known pitcher sparks, and the 23rd most home runs. If you compare the expected outcomes of flies and liners to the actual righty hitters at Bush underperformed more than any other park, I don't know why. Some Cardinals fans suggested the construction uh, of the ballpark outside. I could be. I don't know. But it's weird. But lest you think that this is the reason for Paul Goldschmidt's uh, right. right. underwhelming year, he actually was almost exactly the same home and away. He had the exact same number of home runs, uh, 17 at home, 17 away. He had, uh, he had 837 OPS at home and 807 uh, 805 rather on the road so he actually was slightly better at home so um so my first inst- my first instinct was like oh maybe that's why yeah you no, know, it's was, that. but it definitely seemed to be uh maybe wreak some havoc on ozuna's ozuna's uh ozuna's off Oz- ozuna's season i don't really know i think there's a chance he could end up with the cardinals they're kind of a weird team because they still they still have you know they have some versatile players and they want to play Bader in center field and they still have Fowler and they still have Jose Martinez, but Jose Martinez is really unplayable in the outfield. He didn't even hit that well this year. I can Uh, tell you this. I've been, I've been a guest on two different uh, St. Louis radio shows recently where they've kind of asked me about this article and both hosts kind of had the same uh, conclusion, which is that they're probably going to let him go. And then they're going to try to piece together an outfield from all the guys they have. And they have so many guys, right? There's Tyler O'Neill. Lane Thomas and Dylan Carlson and Randy Arazarina, and that's fine, but this was not a good offense last year, and if you let Ozuna go and you import nobody, that's not a winning offense. Well, that's also part of the reason why I think Ozuna might stay is simply because they're the one team that could sign him without giving up a draft pick, and because he's a player who I think could be hurt. Um, I mean, the thing helping him is the lack of great outfielders in the free agent market, so that's the thing that could sort of flip it in his his favor. Um, That said, like, I think there's a lot of teams that are going to be kind of unenthused about Marcelo Zuna. Left field only. Um, can't throw. Can't throw. Doesn't, I mean, he's not that old, but he just doesn't seem like the kind of like player who's going to age gracefully in terms of his, you know, his speed and defense. Speaking of talented but flawed free agent outfielders, can Nicholas Castellanos play the field? Now, if you were to look at his defensive metrics, they've been very poor, but I dug into this and I, I have some amount of hope. Um, I, I thought it was really interesting because – you know Scott Boris is selling him as a guy who can play the field. There's no doubt about this, right? He went out and he said the same thing about J.D. Martinez a couple weeks ago. He's like, he's not a DH. He's not a DH. And everybody else is like, yeah, no, he's super a DH. And of course, he didn't opt out, probably for this reason. National League teams weren't going to bid on him. I feel a little bit more optimistic about Castellanos. He's not as good of a hitter as Martinez is, but he's also five years younger. And I found something interesting about how infrequently he's actually played the field. Now, I'm going to explain the numbers You've watched him a little bit. You have eyeballs. Can Nicholas Castellanos play the field or will he kill you? Um, he hasn't looked great in the past, but he's also young enough um, where you might be able to see some improvement. You know, he's, he played the season at 27 and also like he hasn't played, as you noted, he hasn't played that much. You I mean, he came as the third baseman and was terrible there. A very, so, very bad. So they were like, uh, I guess we'll try him in the outfield. I, I always had in my head that you know, he's, he's not an experienced outfielder, but until I looked up the numbers, I didn't realize to what extent. Uh, he, as far as I could find out, had never played the outfield in his entire life until double A, right? So I have numbers here on major league innings and minor league innings um, for some other guys as well. 
I can't tell you how often Mike Trout played the outfield, probably his entire life. You know, we don't have any way to account for that. Nicholas Castellanos didn't. He was drafted uh, as a shortstop, which I know you're laughing too. You know who my go-to for that is? Mike Morse was drafted as a shortstop and I think actually got into some major league games oh, he as a shortstop. He, he definitely did. Which I'm pretty sure in like, I don't know, 2004 or whatever, my fantasy team was super stoked about, you know? Um, I'm pretty sure Miguel Sano was signed as a shortstop. Yeah, I don't think he ever played there though. Uh, so Nicholas Castellanos drafted as a shortstop, immediately went to third base in the minors in 2011 and for the first half of 2012. Halfway through that season, he was hitting pretty well. The Tigers had Miguel Cabrera at third base, so they shifted him to right field as a way to get him to the majors sooner. Did that for the remainder of the season. The next year, he moved over to left field. That's 2013. On on opening day 2014, he made his major league debut back at third base because the Tigers had traded Prince Fielder. They'd moved uh, Miggy over to first base. So Castellanos, other than that spring training, hadn't played third base in a year and a half. This is not a good way to get a guy to succeed. Over the next four years, he was arguably, not arguably, he was the worst defensive third baseman <laughs> in baseball. Some of this predates StatCast, so we'll use defensive runs saved. Minus 64 defensive runs saved at third base over those four years. At the end of 2017, he moved to right field, managed to somehow pile up minus seven defensive runs saved in 21 games, which is incomprehensible. Fine. So 2018, he had one of the weakest defensive seasons we've ever seen. That year, he was minus 19 in defensive runs saved. That's fifth. He was minus 24 in outs above average. That is worst. There were rumors at June that the Tigers had actually asked him to move to first base, uh, which he declined by saying that he'd been moved all around and he wanted to stick at one spot. Fine. In 2019, he still wasn't great, but there was a lot of improvement here. He went from minus 24 outs above average to minus seven. He went from minus 19 defensive run save to minus nine. That's all pretty good. It wasn't about him making more great plays. He doesn't. He's never made a play with a catch probability of under 50%. Like he just is not capable of doing that, but he stopped making the truly egregious mistakes. In 2018, he missed 17 plays with a catch probability of higher than 80%. Last year, that went down to only nine missed plays. That's that's progress. And that's what you want to see uh, is progress. Now, back to him being super inexperienced. Because of all the moving around, he has a total of just over 4,250 pro innings as an outfielder, 4,250. I looked up a couple of other guys who are within a same, uh, within a few months uh, in either direction of the same age as Castellanos is. Remember, he's at 4,250. Mike Trout is at almost 12,500. Bryce Harper is at almost 10,600. Kristen Yelich, 10,400. Jock Peterson, 8,600. These guys have had two to three times the amount a professional outfield experience to, again, say nothing about high school, college, Little League, whatever. And Castellanos has been pretty vocal about this in the past, saying, I haven't really played out here that much. You've been moving me around a lot. And you know what? I totally agree with him. <laughs> he's completely right about that. He, he's vocal. To be fair, though, he's vocal about a lot well, of things. Well, that's true. So maybe he's some, he's some... wrong about some things. He thinks he thinks Comerica robbed him of like 25 home runs, and it's more like Three, but <laughs> he's vocal about a lot of things, so maybe sometimes his complaints fall on deaf ears. Um, but he may be onto something here. Um, I'm I don't think he's a superstar, but I, I take him over Arizona for these reasons because I think there's still room for improvement. Yeah, and, and he, he's young, it's the thing because you don't need to have him in, in your outfield until he's 35. You know, if you sign him, uh, you say, Hey, I want you in my outfield for three more years. Well, that's only 30. You know, you can live with that. Um, it's he will have because of the because of no qualifying offer by, by virtue of him um, getting traded during the season. I think he, there will be a um, 
uh, it's a, a, a robust market for him. And it's a weak outfield market. Exactly. So I wanted to find out, um, has anybody had a season on defense in the outfield as lousy as he had in 2018 and come back from it? So uh, this also goes back to 2002. For this, I used Fangraph's defense metric, which is just a position-adjusted version of fielding runs. And I just looked at outfielder seasons. And I only looked at guys who were age 29 or younger because I don't really care about late career Manny Ramirez or Gary Sheffield stumbling around in the outfield. I found that in 2018, his season was the 25th weakest of over 600 qualified seasons. So 22 guys, a couple of guys did it more than once. Most of these guys didn't get better. You don't want to be compared to Adam Dunn, Adam Lind, Jack Cust, Brad Hopp, Johnny Gomes. These are really like... Mid first decade of the century, remembering some guys here, Dimitri Young, Miguel Cabrera. This is actually, not a list of uh, defensive outfielders you want to be. On. So you know, most of them were bad. There were two, and I remember these these two names very closely as I grew up a Dodger fan, and I remember following this team and losing my mind when this happened in 2010. Matt Kemp and Andre Ethier were absolutely atrocious in the outfield. The 2010 Dodgers have, I believe, the weakest defensive outfield on record. They both won gold gloves in 2011, <laughs> probably because they both hit really well. Uh, they were better on defense, sure. Neither one deserved it, but if you really want to go like pie in the sky, you could look at that. There's one guy I think could possibly be a pretty good comp here. Ryan Braun, right? Played shortstop in college, drafted as a third baseman, came up, was really unplayably bad at third base, got moved to the outfield. He's never been great out there, but here we are. What's it now? 11, 12 years later? He's... He's still out there. He doesn't kill you. He's not good. But you could look at Ryan Braun and say, well, that's that's the upside for Castellanos with one caveat. Ryan Braun is a much better hitter than Castellanos has ever shown the ability to be. <laughs> you put up with a little more for that. But for sure. that's the possibility. I think that's I think that's a, a really good comp um, in terms of – I mean, there's just like – there's similarities with just the, the type of player that he is and, you know, just like the, the, the switch from the infield and kind of like the – the actions and the body type, like yeah, there's righty righty profile. There's a, like, there's a lot. There's a lot there. That's um, but he's got a hit that has. But, but even still, I mean, you look at um, Castellanos last few years. I mean, his time with the Cubs was a bit of an outlier. One fifty one OPS plus in uh, fifty one games. But first career, he's one thirteen. He's had full se- two thousand eighteen with Tigers in a full season. He was one twenty eight. Yeah. So I, I look at him as like a fifteen to twenty percent above average hitter, which is good. It's, it's not especially, Martinez, especially but, if he's just like maybe just slightly below average. In the outfield. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, the one thing I'll say about the ballpark is I think his concerns about Comerica are way overblown. Like, it did not hurt him nearly as much as he thinks it did. But it's that last part that's important. If he thinks it did, I'm fully into the placebo effect here. Like, if he went up in Comerica and said, I hate this place, I'm never going to hit a ball out here. And then he goes up to, you know, Wrigley and he's like, yeah, this rules. I'm going to crush the ball. I, I kind of buy into that mindset sort of thing, you know? <laughs> um, p- perhaps. Um, but uh, did you see the... Uh, the uh, the Scott Boris quote about him the other day. And his Old St. Nick. <laughs> Old St. Nick delivers once a year. Young St. <laughs> Nick delivers all year round. It's so good. I, like, he had uh, just like a whole pile of these quotes. Like, you know, somebody's going to get Garrett Cole in their stocking. And I just sort of envisioned him and his employees like in a big conference room with a whiteboard. Like they're a team of comedy writers. No, I, you know? I, I, would, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he outsources like – His joke like, writing? Exactly. <laughs> outsources his quips. Um, I wouldn't be surprised if he's using – in his you know his binders, if he's using uh, Brian Braun as a, uh, a comp. Yeah, I mean probably so. I, I get a kick out of it every year. Some of them are ridiculous. Uh, I'm going to impeach analytics. That was – Topical, I guess. You know, it's like a forty grade joke. Um, 
But I guess the, what I've taken away from this is that I don't think Castellanos, if you're pitching Castellanos, you can do it to National League teams. You know, we saw it down the stretch with the Cubs. Uh, he wasn't great. He didn't kill you. I, I couldn't imagine wanting him and Kyle Schwarber in opposite corners for an entire season. <laughs> that seems rough. Um, it did sound like the Marlins were actually interested. I don't know if he wants to go there. He's, he's from the there. The Marlins were supposed to be interested in Jose Abreu. It's like, what's going on? <laughs> they just, that seems like Yasiel Puig is going to sign there like 10 minutes from now. It's like the perfect fit. Yeah, I guess. In, in they a, they in, have to get some bats. And I guess, I mean, I could, you know, at a certain point, you just want to say, like, we need to get better. And yeah. if Castellanos is just wants the biggest contract and the Marlins are prepared to give it to him, then, hey, more power to you. The, the thing about the Marlins is they're, they're not ready to compete. Like, they're not going to contend next year, but they have a lot of interesting young pitchers, like ready-now pitchers, Caleb Smith and, and uh, Sandy Octara. And, like, the offense is so dreadfully bad. Although the, the flip side of that is if you're building a young team and you're trying to build confidence for your pitchers, do you really want to do it by spending a lot of money on a guy who, even at his best, is probably a below-average outfielder? Uh, no, but I guess one way to, to help fix that is get someone who can actually like play center field. I know Lewis Brinson can field, but Jackie Bradley, Jackie Bradley, Jackie Bradley. Yes. <laughs> anyway, I didn't mean to turn this into Marlins chat. Uh, my point is that Nicholas Castellanos, I think can be a competent, capable, below average, but not going to murder you outfielder. And that's kind of a big deal because I'm not sure he's not a better outfielder than Marcelo Zuna, who's won a gold glove before. And I think I think I've seen both of them linked to the Reds, which maybe makes sense. The Reds are sort of like the the most indecipherable team. The Reds need a center fielder. Um, Neither of these guys are playing center field. Who's their center fielder right now? Well, I mean, it had been Billy Hamilton for a bunch of years. Nick Senzel, right? But they should put him at second base and actually get a sec because they've got uh, Winker in one of the corners. And uh, I can't remember who was playing the other quarter. They could use an outfielder for sure. Um, that's, I mean, it, it seems like they're a team that's going to make whether or not you want to call it a splash, but like they're going to make a, big, a win now move. So one of these guys would sort of at least fit that that um, that uh, that mold. No, you know, like you know, it depends on also how much you believe in Aristides Aquino. Like, oh, that's that right. How could I forget him? Um, I don't believe in him that much, but you've got to give him the shot. After what he showed, you know who the name is for the Reds, right? It's the same name I'm going to say for like every team that's not the Phillies or the Dodgers. Yasmani Grandal. Yasmani Grandal. <laughs> Reds re- draft pick. Drafted after the Reds and traded for, I think, uh, Matt, Latos. Matt Latos to the Padres. Uh, Brad Boxberger was in that deal. And I also want to say Yonder Alonso was in that deal. And there was a fourth guy too, but I can't remember who it was. Yeah, some someone like that. But yes, uh, Grandal would make sense there as well as a lot of other a lot of other places. Um, hopefully by this time next week, we'll have uh, some other moves. Will Smith got signed. So maybe that'll set things in motion. Sure. I'm never too worried about like early off season slowness. Cause this happens like literally every single year, but we should start to see a couple things before Thanksgiving. Yeah, think. no doubt. All right. That's our show for this week. Thanks for listening. This is the MLB.com podcast podcast. <laughs>